In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's my opinion, there is your opinion, and then there's what Philip has just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. (sighs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Lord, we believe in your spirit, and we would ask that through your word, your spirit would teach us today that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would unclog stopped up ears, and that you would teach us. Thank you for this passage. Bless us today through, through our consideration of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm a pastor here at City Church, and alongside Aaron Sands, who led us this morning, I serve as one of the elders here at City Church. Uh, If you are visiting with us, welcome. We are really, really grateful that you took time to join us this morning. Um, Last week, we began a new sermon series for the fall, fall that I've called A Light to the Nations, which we continue today, and what we are doing is we are asking the question, why are we here? And, and more particularly, why is the church here? What is the mission of the church? Why do we exist? You see, we live in a culture um, that has lots of different answers to the why are we here question. As I mentioned last week, there's sort of the individualist perspective which says that you and I are here to embrace and and to enjoy 
the freedom to become whoever in whatever we want. That, that life's highest good is my enjoyment of my own personal freedom. There is a naturalist approach that says, because we can't believe in anything that we can't see, touch, hear, taste, or feel, life's highest good is, is simply this, that, that we should just eat, drink, and be merry. There's the consumer approach, which says that, that life's highest good is the experience of significance or happiness or security or safety that can only be acquired through the acquisition and consumption of goods and services and experiences and, and relationship. There's the spiritist who says that life's highest good is unity and peace on earth. And so it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as what you believe is an exclusive. There's my truth, there's your truth, and as long as we agree on that, um, we can all get along and humanity can flourish. I mean, that's just a snapshot of the world in which we live. If we were fish, that would be the water in which we swim. These are the stories and the images that swirl around us 24 hours a day on TV and magazines and conversations at school, at the movies, at work, in the books we read. And here's the thing. The church's understanding of itself and as a result, its understanding of its mission is easily, easily taken captive and shaped by these cultural stories. What happens when we embrace uncritically the cultural stories? Well, the church loses what makes it different, what makes it distinct. It actually becomes nothing more than a, a pale imitation of culture. We, members of the body of Christ, end up looking just like everybody else. And as I mentioned last week, the world does not thirst for an imitation of itself. So the question before us today, the questions before us today are what we have in our bulletin under the reflection section. Michael Goheen, author of A, Nation, A Light to the Nations, writes, the questions before us are which story is shaping our self-understanding? Which images are forming our self-identity? And then Goheen goes on to assert that the church can remedy being molded by an alien story and conformed to alien images of what it should be by returning to the biblical story and its images. And then he goes on to say this, sometimes the only way forward is to start again at the beginning. Beloved, that's what we're doing this morning. We're, we're starting at the beginning. We're we are returning to God's story and the, the, I, the thought here is that we long to be shaped and conform to God's story rather than the stories that surround us. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be zeroing in on Genesis chapters uh, one to three because these three chapters are sort of like a key on a map. We don't use paper maps very often anymore, but you probably remember 
that when you unfolded a map, there was always a key, sort of a north, south, east, west marker on the map so that you could orient yourself to the map, right? Well, Genesis 1 to 3 is sort of like a key to the map of life. God has given us these earliest chapters in Genesis so that that we might have a true understanding of the real world in which we live and, and, and so that we might find our own place in it. Now, I know that at least for some people, this raises all kinds of questions. Genesis 1 to 3 raises all kinds of questions. Like, are we supposed to take that seriously? Like, literally? Are we supposed to see it as, as history? Do these chapters... Do they sort of bind us to a certain understanding of creation? What about Adam and Eve? Did they really exist? What about a talking snake? Did it really exist? What about the fall? Did the fall actually really happen in time and space? For some people, maybe some of you, the early chapters of Genesis seem to contradict everything you learned in high school biology. And you can't help but conclude that by taking, that in order to take Genesis 1 to 3 seriously, you've got to sort of check your brain at the door. There are other folks who, who, read Genesis 1 and then they read Genesis 2 and they recognize that there seem to be these differences in these two accounts that if, if you study carefully, look like they contradict one another. And instead of wrestling with that, you stick your head in the sand and, and you, you sort of hope that nobody asks you a question that, that, that sort of tugs at that doubt that begins to lead to the unfraying of your faith. And here's the deal, neither of these options are very good. So the question I wanna ask, really I've got two questions, you have them on your outline. The two questions I wanna ask, or the first question I wanna ask is, how are we supposed to understand our passage this morning? A number of folks have helped me think through this question and their fingerprints are all over this sermon this morning, particularly Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew in their book, The Drama of Scripture, as well as Tim Keller and Rankin Wilburn. Now, you all know intuitively that the key to rightly understanding a text, whether it's the Bible or the newspaper or a cookbook, is to understand what kind of literature it is. You don't try to cook a pie reading a history book. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't try to fix your bike by reading the Sunday paper. When, when Emily Dixon, Dick Dickinson writes, hope is the thing that feathers, with feathers, that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all, you know that she is not talking about a bird. You know that she is painting a picture that is meant to stir you up with hope. You know that the Bible is made up of all kinds of different kinds of literature. There's law, there's history, 
there's apocalyptic, there's gospel, there's, there's poetry, there's prophecy. More than that, you don't read Psalm 95 the same way that you read John 3. You don't even have to think about it. You just know, I don't, I don't, read, I don't read the Psalms the same way I read 2 Samuel. What that means is that you know deep down that in order to understand a passage, you need to understand what kind of literature it is. And so the question we have to ask is, what kind of literature do we have in these early chapters of Genesis, and particularly Genesis chapter one? In the same way that, that no one debates that the Bible is made up of different kinds of literatures, no one debates that what we have in Genesis one and Genesis two are not one, but two creation stories. And if you look closely at them, they, they seem, they, it seems like they don't say the same thing. One example, in, Genesis chap, in the Genesis chapter one account, when you look at the order of creation, what you see is there doesn't seem to be much of a concern for sort of a logical, natural progression. One example would be that on day one, God creates light, but he doesn't create the sun and the moon and the stars until day four. But when you look at the second creation account in Genesis chapter two, what you see described there is what we would consider to be a very logical order to creation. In chapter two, verse five, we read, no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There seems to be this, this logical progression in creation. You've got to have water before you have vegetation. That's what we see in the second creation account. The first creation account in Genesis 1, natural order doesn't seem all that important. But in the second creation account, natural order is assumed. What do you do with that? Some folks hear that, they recognize that, and they think, that's exactly why I don't take the Bible seriously. The author such a dope, he placed two contradictory creation stories right next to one another. And what I would suggest to you is you've got to give the author a little more credit than that. Others of you simply ignore these differences. You kind of close your eyes and you hope that no one's gonna ask you a question that's gonna cause your faith to begin to unravel. Again, those aren't good options. So the question we have to ask is, how do we make sense of these, these two creation accounts without sacrificing our brains and without weakening our faith? What, what, what's been very helpful to me is what we see in both Exodus 14 and 15 and Judges four and five. In Exodus 14, we have the historical account of the exodus of Israel, of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 15, we have this song that the Israelites sing, recounting and celebrating their exodus from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 15 tells the same story, but it tells it differently. Similarly, in Judges 4, we have the account of Deborah 
leading the people of Naphtali and Zebulun in victory over Sisera and the Canaanite, he's the Canaanite general and their armies. And in Judges 5, we have Deborah's song, a recounting and celebration of Deborah's victory over Sisera and his armies. I believe, and I would suggest to you that what we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is similar to what we have in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. It's similar to what we have in Judges 4 and Judges 5. I would suggest to you that the the account in Genesis 1 reads like a glorious hymn of praise. And and that makes sense when you consider what we have here. This is is the beginning of the Bible. And and it begins in what? It begins in this explosion of worship. There's this repeated pattern and God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And there's this repeated refrain and there was evening and there was morning. There's, There's order the, the, the imagery, the repetition, Genesis 1 looks very much like a hymn of praise, a hymn of exaltation. Does that mean that it's not true? Absolutely not. I believe that Genesis 1 is to Genesis 2 what the Star Spangled Banner is to the War of 1812. They tell the truth, but in different ways. Now, if that's the case, what is the point of Genesis 1? Well, a second key to rightly understanding a text is to read it according to the author's intent. And again, you, you, you all do this all the time. A good friend cracks on you. They bust on you. And, and, and what happens? You don't get mad. You don't get angry. You actually laugh. Why? Because you know that you're a good friend, even though they're making a joke at your expense, you know that they're your good friend. They don't mean to hurt you. It's actually kind of endearing that, that this friend feels comfortable enough with you to, to make fun of you. You understand your friend's intent. Well, how can we understand Moses' intent in Genesis chapter one? Well, let's, let's think about it this way. When was Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When were these chapters written? There's actually really not any debate about that. I mean, most folks say these chapters were written sometime after the Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt and sometime before they stepped foot into the promised land 40 years later. And I would suggest to you that's that's very helpful It's very helpful because when you think about the Israel's lives, you begin to sort of see what Moses' intent was. The Israelites had existed for for centuries in slavery in Egypt. They had been surrounded by the stories and particularly the creation stories, the, the, the gods of the Egyptians. And they were about to step into the promised land, into a land that was occupied by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites had all kinds of gods. And it would have been so easy for the Israelites to adopt the stories of the people who were already in the land. I mean, the Canaanites, they knew the land. The Canaanites had all kinds of gods. They had a god of fertility. They had a god of rain. They had a god for the crops. I mean, whatever's out there, they had a god for it. For the Israelites who were learning how to be farmers 
for the very first time, they might be tempted to adopt not only the farming techniques of the Canaanites, but also the gods of the Canaanites. And Moses is very concerned about that. And I would, I would suggest that his intent wasn't to lay out for us the mechanics of creation. That his intent wasn't to, to give us the length of the creation day. That his intent wasn't to lay out the chronology of creation. Why do I say that? Because no one wandering around in the desert for those 40 years were asking those questions. And that wasn't what Moses was concerned about. Moses, Moses is concerned about the people. He's concerned about the Israelites. He's concerned that they continue to walk faithfully with their Lord. He's concerned that they will be tempted to adopt the stories of the surrounding nations as the basis for their own self-understanding, their understanding of the world, and their place in it. So what does he do? Consider the words of, of J.I. Packer. He says, the message of Genesis 1 and 2 is this. Have you seen the sea? Have you seen the sky, sun, moon, and stars? Have you watched the birds and the fish? Have you observed the landscape and the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and the little things together? Well, now, meet the one who is behind it all. You must shake hands with the artist. You must meet the composer. What is Packer saying? He's saying that Genesis 1 is an introduction to God. Our passage is not concerned about the method or the mechanics of creation. It's concerned about the God of creation. Or to put it another way, it's not about chronology, it's about theology. This is an introduction to the story of God. And it is introducing us to the main character who is God. Now, what does that mean for us? It means this, that you don't have to stick your head in the sand when you read the early chapters of Genesis, that you can actually have confidence that the Bible is what it says it is, the very expired word of God, that it tells us the true story of the whole world. You don't have to, to check your brain at the door in order to take the Bible seriously. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It also means this, that Christians who love Jesus and love the Bible can and will have different opinions about the mechanics of creation, about the age of the earth, about the, the length of the creation day. And therefore, what that calls for from us is, is humility toward one another and, and charity, charity showered on people who, who think differently or at least have come to different conclusions than you have with regards to those mechanical questions. If Genesis 1 is not about chronology but it's about theology, it takes us to our second question. What is the theology that we find in Genesis 1 in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2? It can be summed up in 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. God is set forth before us as what? As our creator. Before anything else was, God is. Moses makes no qualifying statements. He doesn't give us any apologetic arguments for the existence of God. He doesn't provide us with any proofs. He doesn't explain how God got here or where he came from. He just asserts, in the beginning, God. God is God. He has always been God. And he will always be God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. But more than that, God is utterly and completely different from anything and everything in creation. This is what theologians call the creature or the creator creature distinction. There is God and then there's everything else and God is the creator of everything else. And that's really good news because you know what that means? It means that you don't ever have to be afraid of learning the truth. You don't have to be afraid of science. Why? Because God is the author of all truth. There can be no real conflict between science and what the Bible has to say because God created all things. God is the author of both the Bible and the author of nature. And what that means is that the best science and the best scholarship cannot contradict one another. And you're thinking, ho, 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 Jeff. My science teacher said there are, there, there's no such thing as miracles. My, my science teacher says that, that there is no God. My science teacher says that human beings are just a product of time and chance. That that we evolved from some primordial ooze, that, that we are the result of blind, random mutation. And what I would say to you is that those are not actually scientific statements. They cannot be proven or demonstrated by the scientific method. They are faith statements. They're not factual statements that can be tested and observed. They are philosophical statements and they have to be taken as faith. I say this specifically to the students in the room. You have no reason to fear knowledge or the truth or science because God is the author of all truth. He is the author of nature. He is the author of creation. And because God is both the author of nature and creation, they cannot, at the end of the day, contradict one another. Does, does that mean that what science tells us about evolution is right? Because it is, it's taught like settled fact in high schools and colleges. Friends, evolution as sort of the grand explanation of everything that is is a faith position. It, it, it can't be proven. It, it can't be demonstrated. More importantly, evolution as a kind of grand explanation of everything that is contradicts what we see in our passage. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What, what does that mean? It means that we aren't products of time and chance. 
We were created in the image of God. We, were, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're gonna talk about what that means more next week. But I just want you to see that we don't have to turn off our brains when we come to scripture and we don't need to be afraid of knowledge. We don't need to be afraid of science. But we, we also need to call faith, faith, and fact, fact. And faith and fact are not the same thing. I mean, faith can be in facts, but just because somebody asserts that we evolved from ooze doesn't mean that we evolved from ooze. That's not fact, that's faith. So what else does this passage teach us about God? It teaches us that God is not only our creator, but he is the creator. We know quite a bit about the sorts of creation stories that were circulating in the ancient Near East. In both the Egyptian and the Canaanite religions, the sun and the moon were worshiped as gods. And yet, what do you see in our passage? God, with nothing more than a word, creates the sun and the moon and the stars and he sets them in their place. According to the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation narrative, creation is the result of a war between the gods. But according to the Bible, all God has to do is speak it and it happens. Let there be light and there was light. No battle, no struggle, no war. What does this mean? It means that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And here's the thing, he is not only creator, he is not only all powerful, but he is good. He is good over and over as God creates light and the heavens and fish and plants, we hear this repeated frame, and it was good. One scholar put it like this, he said, God's creation is good, and this created goodness merely highlights the creator's own incomparable goodness, wisdom, and justice. And we see God's goodness not only expressed in his creation, but in the way that he relates to his creation. The gods of the surrounding nations were capricious gods. They were moody. They were fickle. Again, according to the Enuma Elish, humanity was created to be servants to the gods, to do for the gods what they didn't want to do, to wait on them, to, to make them happy. But the God of Genesis 1 is completely different. He creates this majestic wonderland. Think Yosemite. Think the Grand Canyon, think Acadia National Park. Think about the Rockies and the Adirondacks and the Smokies and the Grand Tetons. Think about every beach and every ocean and every tropical island you've ever seen. Think about the Austrian Alps and Victoria Falls and Zambia and Zimbabwe. Think about Kilimanjaro and Tanzania, all rolled into one. God created this, this paradise on earth and then God sets our first parents in this paradise as a place where they can live and thrive and enjoy not only the wonders of creation, but also the intimate presence and companionship of their creator himself. God speaks to his creation. 
Genesis 3 tells us that God walked side by side with Adam and with Eve, speaking with them face to face. What Moses is saying to the Israelites and what he is saying to us is this is God. What would you think would be the appropriate response to God? Certainly thankfulness. Listening. Like, I mean, he speaks and something comes out of nothing. We ought to, we ought to, we ought to listen to him. We, we ought to submit to him. We ought to obey him. We ought to order our lives according to his, his revealed will. And here's the thing, all those things are absolutely right. But I want you to listen to what the heavenly beings are doing right now and, and, and more importantly, why they are doing it. This comes from Revelation chapter four. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What are the heavenly beings doing right now? They're worshiping. Their, their, their hearts are exploding in praise. Why are they worshiping the Lord? Because he created all things. Beloved, this is the appropriate response to who God is as our creator. Worship, adoration, awe, jubilation. Now maybe you think, all right, it's kind of interesting, but I don't live in paradise. I live in East Nashville, which is pretty close to paradise, but it's not paradise. Beloved, what the Bible teaches us is that if you, if you trust Christ, if you look to Christ in faith, if you believe that, that the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that, that you were supposed to live and died the death that you deserve to die, you will live in paradise. Now, why do I say that? Every scholar I looked at puts chapter two, verse four, as the beginning of the second creation account. But I included it because I want to show something to you. What is God's name in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3? Look at the text. What's his name? What's he called over and over and over and over again? It's called God. It's called God. God, Elohim. Elohim is the generic name for gods. The Canaanites had Elohim. The Philistines had Elohim. The Hittites had Elohim. Everyone had Elohim, but in Chapter two, verse four, the God of the Bible is called what? Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And no one, no one else had a God named Yahweh Elohim. What does that mean? Two key passages in the Old Testament, Exodus three and Exodus six, shed light on the name Yahweh. 
These passages tell us how God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh when he called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The name Yahweh is the name by which God chooses to identify himself as the Redeemer. The God who rescues his people from slavery and makes them his covenant people at Mount Sinai. Now, what you need to know is that redemption is a commercial term. It's a, it's a term that's used in the marketplace. To redeem means to, to buy or buy back. How did God buy back the Israelites? Well, do you remember why the Spirit passed over the Israelites on the night of the Exodus? Do you remember why? They had applied the blood of a lamb to their doorposts. They were purchased by this blood. But what the Israelites didn't know, but we do know, is that the blood of that lamb did not actually redeem them, but it pointed to the one who would. Jesus Christ, who Paul tells us is our Passover lamb, who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, who redeemed us who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Beloved, this is your God. He is not only your creator, but he is also your redeemer. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, God, who said, let, there be, let, let, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And he has promised that the day is coming when he is going to make all things new. Do you know what that means? It means that we can live our lives with confidence. The world is not the way it's described in Genesis chapters one and two. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. But here's the good news of the gospel. The world is not gonna always be the way it is. God one day is going to return and he is going to make not just you and me new, but he's gonna make all things new. What is his mission to us in the meantime? That we would live in his story. That we would live out his story. That we would tell others his story. That we would be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That everything we do and say would be for his glory. How do we do that? Come back next week. I'll tell you more. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. These, uh, this passage is, uh, it's, it's one of those passages that um, create lots of arguments. Everybody's got an opinion. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would take your word, you would open our eyes, and you would help us to believe what you have for us rather than what our world says or even what we say and argue with one another about. Lord, would we, leave, would we live our lives today not simply as your creation, 
but as those you have redeemed with your blood. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.